All right, take your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6 this morning. I want to begin a new series this week entitled Pictures of Grace. Excited to introduce it to you, excited to preach through it. Pictures of Grace, beginning in Genesis chapter number 6 this morning. I want to compliment our Master's Club program yesterday. They went up to Hazlitt, did an awesome job. We had puppet shows and specials and all sorts of things. And uh, they came home just packing the awards, but uh, they got the Spirit Award, which is a big deal. And I'm just so proud of them representing the Lord and our church so well. Thankful for all the adults that helped our, our, our kids as they prepared for that. Did a great job. And then I want to uh, just ask you to please um, keep the Harper family in your prayers this morning. Last night, Brother Curtis's father went home to be with the Lord. And um, it, they were expecting it. It, it. And Brother Curtis was just asking for prayer that it would all happen suddenly and, and uh, painlessly and... Seemingly that's the case, and so we just keep them in our prayers as uh, they go through this time of difficulty, and, and I just ask that you do that for me, okay? Genesis chapter number 6 this morning, we're going to read a story that you've probably heard a thousand times. I hope, though, we'll look at it from a slightly different angle than maybe what you're accustomed to. I'm going to be speaking on Noah, and specifically his ark. Verse number 1, the Bible says, And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them to wives of all which they chose. The Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in the in unto the daughters of men, and they bare them children, uh, children to them. The same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. Verse number 5, the Bible says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping thing, the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. I was reading through my Bible some time ago, and I came to this chapter, began reading it, and I I just... I was following along with the Bible's narrative and man just thinking how bad the world must have been, how wicked and vile. If every imagination of every man's heart was only evil continually, I I can't imagine how God must have felt about the entire situation as man has destroyed his perfect creation by introducing sin and now instead of worshiping the Creator, they're completely rebelling against Him. And I was reading through verses 1 through 7, and I just tell you, I was on God's side. I was like, God, just destroy it all. And man, when I got to that place, in verse number 8, stuck out to me, because as bad as everything was, God still was abundant in grace. And Noah found grace in the eyes of God. But the Bible says in verse number 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Room shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And this is the fa- uh, fashion which thou shalt make it of. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, the height of it 30 cubits. Windows shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above. The door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof. With lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make. You know, I did some math, and I have come to the conclusion that it was big. All right, moving on. Verse number 17. Behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. But with thee will I establish my covenant. Thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wives, or thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee, and of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female, of fowls after their kind, of cattle after their kind, of every creeping thing of, of the earth after his kind, two of every sort shall come unto thee to keep them alive. And take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten, thou shalt gather it to thee, and it shall be for food for thee and for them. Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. One day Jesus was, Jesus was speaking to a group of Jews who were criticizing him for healing on the Sabbath day. And in John chapter 5, after hearing their criticism, he says these words, Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. The unique thing about him saying that is he says it in the book of John. The books of the New Testament are, as we see, at least the Gospels, are currently being lived out. There are no recorded Gospels yet. Paul, while probably already sitting on the Sanhedrin Council has not had his Damascus Road experience yet. Therefore, he has not met with Ananias. And he's not saved. There are no prison epistles. There are no letters from Peter. Peter is still the the coarse-mouthed sailor man that Jesus met once he was introduced to Jesus by his brother Andrew. I mean, we are a long way from the completion of the canon of the New Testament. I mean, we have not gotten the New Testament. It's currently being lived out right before us. And yet Jesus says, search the scriptures. Well, what scriptures? And it's not the New Testament because it hasn't come in completion. What's he talking about? 
Well, he's speaking to a bunch of Jews who are criticizing him for healing on the Sabbath day. And he says to these Jewish people, you consult the scriptures which you believe, which, by the way, is the Old Testament. And he says, in them you think ye have eternal life, but these scriptures testify of me. You know, when we read the Old Testament, we are impressed We're impressed with the different characters throughout the the Old Testament narrative. I mean, we're interested by people like Daniel, who faithfully continue to pray despite the king's edict. He's tossed into a lion's den, and we love the Sunday school feel of that lesson. We love stories about the three Hebrew children who, despite the king's decree, will not bow down to the idol that had been made there. And yet they stand and the Bible teaches us they're thrown into the fiery furnace. And we love these stories. And I particularly love the part where old Nebuchadnezzar says, Hey guys, didn't we throw three men into the fire? And they said, yeah, that's, that's right, king. He says, well, then somebody tell me this. How come I see four men up loose walking around and the fourth has the image of the Son of God? We love those stories. We love stories like the one we find in our passage this morning, Noah's Ark, the miraculous delivery of God and, and uh, saving man and his creation in this floating vessel. I mean... We love these Old Testament stories and characters. But let me tell you this morning, if the only thing you focus on when you read the Old Testament is the characters that are good, or their faith, or their commitment to God, or God's delivering power, whether working through Israel or through His prophets, if the only thing that jumps off the page and you read the Old Testament is these things, you have missed the boat. Sorry for the pun. Because Jesus says the Old Testament screams... Of his presence. And what we're speaking of are the types or the pictures of Christ. How little, seemingly ins- insignificant details of the Old Testament teach us that one day salvation could be obtained through the Lord's Messiah, Jesus. A while back, my wife and I went to the Cleburne Drama Theater. I think it's called the Plaza. We have a good time down there. We're the only people not gray-headed that ever go there, but we have a good time nonetheless. And a few years ago, they were running a play called uh, Clue, and it was basically Clue like the board game or the movie that you've seen. And, And we went in, and at the beginning, you would walk into this open theater with chairs surrounding it to just soft piano music playing. Over in the corner was the piano and the piano player, and they're just playing the music. And you walk in, and the lights are dimly lit, and you find your seat, and Eventually, kind of the, the, I think it was the butler, if I recall correctly, he comes out and he introduces you to the, the house and the situation. And they actually take game cards like you would use for the board game and they draw them out exactly like you would in the board game. They put them in a sealed envelope and put them over on a shelf. And as all this is going on, 
the, the cards will reveal the killer. And throughout the whole night, the songs and the clues, and you're trying to... And me and my wife are just uber competitive. That's the way to have a healthy marriage, by the way, is just try to cutthroat and just try to win at everything you do. And so me and my wife, I'm like, I'm going to get it. You're not going to get it. You know, we're, we're going back and forth, and, and she's trying to look on my page to get clues. I'm like, no, you keep your own clues, you know, and we're having a good time. And throughout the course of the night, we got the clues, and we both came to our own conclusions as to who had killed the owner of the house and man this is just a good time and I'll never forget being so disappointed because neither of us got it right at the end of it all what came to be was they actually had said well this person did it with this weapon but he was not the mastermind and I'm like what and the, the detective, I believe it was, says, The killer has been under our nose the entire time. And I'm thinking to myself, maybe I got it right. I don't know. I just didn't know. And out of nowhere, the detective goes, It's the piano player! The piano player hasn't been involved at all. At no point did the piano player's name come up. At no point did the piano player uh, ever get involved in the narrative or the dialogue of the story. All the piano player did was play the piano. And I was so angry that I had missed this so obvious clue. I think when we get to heaven, what's going to happen is we're going to look at the Old Testament in a completely different way. And we're going to realize that what we should have been looking at the whole time, we missed it all together. For off the page of every uh, page in the Old Testament leaps the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning we find it right here in the side of our ark, the door, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to share with you three important lessons this morning about this picture of grace. Number one, this story teaches us that there is a real dilemma at hand. Verse number six, the Bible tells us as God looks at the creation that he had so carefully crafted, the Bible says it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. God was so moved, so saddened and so grieved at the presence of and the work of sin in his creation, that it grieved his heart. And by the way, I don't want anybody to ever get the feeling that your sin does not grieve the heart of God. God sits in heaven looking at the world and he sees not only the presence of sin, but he sees the product of sin. And while we might look at it as just oh, one hiccup or one mess up, God sees that it is a way that leads to death and destruction. And we don't always understand that, but God hates sin. The Bible teaches us two important things about God in this passage. And it's a bit of a wrestling match takes place. It teaches us, number one, that God is a just God. In verse number five, the Bible tells us that because of this sin, 
because it grieved God so badly, because he saw what it was doing to his creation and to man. The Bible says God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It means that there was no aspect of man's life that was not uh, corrupted by sin. The, the, the phrase imagination of the thoughts of his heart speaks of the inner man. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 23, for as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And every thought that these men had was wicked. Therefore, every deed that they did was wicked. We might say it like this today. You ever said to somebody, that kid's rotten to the core. Literally yesterday, me and dad and brother, or I guess it was Friday, we're standing up here by the casket and Johnny Martinez and they're shaking hands. Hey, yeah, good to see you hugging everybody. And one kid comes by and he shakes his hand. And he leans over to me and says, that kid is rotten to the core. You ever heard that? Rotten to the core. Well, that's what's taking place here. Every man had so set himself at opposition with God. Every act, every deed, every word, every thought, every idea, every action of these men was only wicked and evil continually. And God, being a just God, had to punish wickedness. He chooses in this case to do so by a worldwide flood. The Bible teaches us that no wickedness will go unpunished. The Bible says, though hand join in hand, the wicked shall not be unpunished. In fact, there's a unique passage in Romans chapter 2 where uh, uh, the, the, the passage says, And thinkest thou this, O man, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? He's saying, he's saying, do you think you're special? You think somehow, Dad, you say it like this, you got a chrome belly button or something? Think it, thinkest thou this? Have you bought into the lie that maybe you're the, the special one that will avoid the judgment of Almighty God? You're not. I think sometimes we treat God like we treat local police officers. I mean, we all break the law when we drive. We speed. We wear our seatbelt sometimes. We honor stop signs unless it's in Joshua. The red light's on 917. I'm just here to confess. You know, confession is good for the soul. We've got to confess our faults one to another. Them stinking red lights at 917 will stay red even though somebody is not sitting there. And I just, after 10 minutes, I just am going to run it. And it is right by the police station, but you know what? I've got my back-the-blue debit card, and I'll just hand that to them and say, just cash the ticket now, man. i just tell you. And we all do it. We all break the law. And, and it's, we choose to break the law. But the problem is, we hope we get away with it. Yesterday, me and Brother Sean came up on an accident. We were out reaping the harvest fields. And uh, we come up on an accident there, and... I realized I was not wearing my seatbelt, so Brother Sean watched. I mean, he watched a professional at work. My hand went from the window sill underneath the window 
grab, you know, you can't move this arm because that's obvious. So you have to use the left arm, get the seatbelt, drag it over, and then click it. No, I've been good the whole time, Mr. Ossifer. I don't know what's wrong, you know. I tell you, we, we, and we all do it. The problem is, those police officers, although I respect every one of them, they are not omniscient. God is. You will not sneak one over on a holy God. And thinkest thou this, O man, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? You won't. For the Bible says, and it is appointed unto man once to die, after this, the judgment. There is no passing go. There is no collecting $200. When you die, the next thing you will do is stand before God at judgment. And I'll just tell you, this thought ought to make every one of us so scared to the very marrow of our bones. But the Bible not only teaches us about a just God in this passage, it teaches us about a gracious God in this passage. Although the whole scope of human civilization was only evil continually, the Bible says that instead of just taking the whole earth and wadding it up and throwing it away or melting it away with fervent heat, the Bible says that God looked at Noah and Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And by the way, everybody finds grace in God's eyes. Nobody earns it. We all find it. We do not earn it. To earn grace is to make it something besides grace because grace at its very core is the unmerited or unearned favor of God. To think that somehow we could be capable of impressing God so much that He would want to give us grace is foolishness. The Bible says, for by grace are you saved, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Could you imagine one man entering into heaven having earned it? I do not want to live anywhere near that guy. Because what that guy would do, he'd walk around heaven saying, all you other guys, y'all got the freebie ride, but I actually earned it. Not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. No man can boast of it, because no man can earn the grace of God. Noah was a good man, absolutely. But he was not good enough to earn God's grace. It was freely bestowed on him, as it is upon all who are willing to receive it. And I want to offer you something today. I want to offer you a blank slate. I want you to think of how badly you need the grace of God. And so in doing this, I want to, you to imagine that I had the authority to just hand you a blank slate. Everything you've ever done in your past is wiped away. You start at zero. No debts, no sins, no trespasses against a holy God. You start at this very moment, blank slate. I guarantee you by this evening, every one of us will owe God again. See, we all need the grace of God. The Bible says we are, and Isaiah puts it like this, from the sole of our foot 
to the top of our head, we, there is no soundness in us. All flesh is vanity. All have become unprofitable. There is none that seeketh after God. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. The Bible says we all need the grace of God. And I'm so thankful that there's a God in heaven who is willing to open up the windows of heaven and pour out His grace upon a people who so desperately need it. I not only want you to share with you the the first lesson of the dilemma this morning, but I want to share with you the lesson of the door. The Bible teaches us that there is a door in this passage, and we read it, and it seems rather insignificant, but I promise you it's not. Verse number 14, the Bible begins to tell us how Noah would construct the ark. He was to make the ark of gopher wood. Room shalt thou make in the ark, shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. That's an interesting statement there. Within and without with pitch. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make it. It shall be 300 cubits length and breadth of it 50 cubits, the height of it 30 cubits. And verse 16 gives us an idea of Uh, what he was supposed to do, a window would be above, shalt thou make to the ark, and a cubit shalt thou finish it above. So there's a window in the top of this vessel. That's a bit peculiar in and of itself. It's raining, and you've got a window in the top of the boat. That's odd and unique, but God's instructions, there's probably some very practical reasons for it. I think there's a type in in that verse as well. I mean, you've got to have some light going to the third floor, and you've got to have some ventilation. There's a lot of animals on that boat, so it makes sense that there would be a window. But the Bible says, And the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. So it's a three-story vessel, a window in the top, a door in the side. Now you just read that, and you think, there's nothing special about that door. It's just a door. I will draw your attention to the fact that there was only one door. And there are a lot of people in this world that would make you think or have you believe that there are multiple doors to heaven. But in this case, there was only one door. And in the real world, in the spiritual world, there is only one door to God. So we find many interesting things about this door. But I want to draw your attention to verse number 3. The Bible says in verse number 3 of chapter 6, Yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. What does this passage teach us about this door? Well, number one, this door will not always be open. God had set a definite date to when all of mankind would die in this universal flood besides Noah and his family. He said, 120 years from right now, a flood will come and destroy all of mankind. And so this door seemingly is rather insignificant, but, but just on a practical level, we learn one very important thing. At some point, if Noah and his family are going to be safe, that door has to shut. You with me? You following along? And I want to tell you this morning that the door to salvation will not always be open. I've got great news for you. It's open right now. But it will not always be open. 
If you read in chapter 7, it's kind of interesting that Noah is instructed to get on the boat. But Noah doesn't shut the door. God shuts it. And what we find is the door has a date. A time, a specific time where, where it's going to close. And if you're on the outside of the vessel, you're out of luck. Now, if you're on the inside, you're safe. But outside the vessel, the door doesn't open again. Amen. You know the Bible, and Jesus specifically, when referring to this passage, He says, as it was in the days of Noah, yeah. so shall it be when the Son of Man comes. Everybody's going to be eating and drinking and laughing and everybody's going to be about their work and life's going to be fine and nobody's going to think anything about it. But as it was in the days of Noah, there's going to come a time where the Son of Man will come back and His, his church will be called away. And, and I want to let you know today that at that moment, at that day, the, the door to heaven will close. And you say, no, Brother Andrew, I'll get saved after. My friend, you right now currently have the man of God preaching the word of God, moved by the Holy Spirit of God. If you do not get saved today, you will not get saved when the Antichrist is here. When there will not be men like me standing up and proclaiming, when the Holy Spirit of God will not be convicting souls, you listen to me, friend, don't buy into the lie that you're going to get saved in the tribulation period. No, the door to salvation will close. As it was in the days of Noah, everybody's going to be eating and drinking and laughing and playing and they're going to be going about their business, but the door to heaven will not always be open. But it's open right now. And my friend, the only thing I can say to you is the same thing that I am sure that Noah said to his civilization. Get on the boat. You know, Peter calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. I think with every hammer blow and every thrust of the saw, Noah was testifying to his generation that God was going to send judgment upon the earth. And I even think it's a step farther because that word preacher literally means to raise up your voice. I think when the the boat got high enough, Noah used it as a platform and stood up and maybe even built himself a pulpit there. And he started to preach to his generation that God was going to send judgment upon the earth. And he became a preacher of righteousness in his generation and yet nobody listened but there came a day when the door to salvation closed we not only see that the door to salvation will not always be open but we see this it's not under our control Genesis chapter 7 verse 15 the Bible says and they went in unto Noah uh, into the ark Two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. And they that went in, went in male and female of all flesh, as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. Noah did not have navigation capabilities. Noah had a lot of responsibility to do within the boat. I mean, he was to gather the food. He was to then feed the animals. I mean, he had a lot of responsibility. It, it was faith that produced work inside the boat. He wasn't work to be saved. He was in the boat. He was working, but he wasn't working to be saved. God was doing the navigating. God was doing the directing. I'll take it a step farther. God sealed the door. So Noah enters into the boat through the door, the one door, 
God shuts the door and God had specifically instructed Noah to seal the boat both inside and outside. He says, pitch it within and without. So let's, let's get this straight. Noah was saved by going through the door, was secured by the hand of Almighty God, and was sealed in the same way that the New Testament believer is? What you have here is a beautiful picture of eternal security. And there's a lot of people in this, in this generation of Christianity that have you believe that Baptists are the only one crazy enough to believe in eternal security. But I think it's the most foolish concept that somebody could get saved, do nothing to earn it, only ask God to save them, and somehow from that moment on, they're expected to earn everything else. I mean, I mean we didn't work for it to get it, but now we've got to work for it to keep it. My friend, if you understand just how wicked man is, do you know how silly it is to ask a baby to walk right away? We're called babes in Christ. And yet the way a a person that doesn't believe in eternal security would have you believe is that baby ought to be perfect. It ought to be fully mature or else it's going to lose its salvation right away. The Bible teaches us in Romans chapter 5. It says this. It says that we can have peace with God. God. Well, how do we have peace with God? Being justified by faith. There is no peace in God and somebody that's always on the hamster wheel of hope and they don't lose their salvation. There is no peace when you lay your head down at night and you say, well, I just hope I lived good enough for God today. Can you believe how cruel it would be for God to say, hey, just so you know, there's a chance you can lose your salvation and I could come at any moment. Let's just hope you're on the right moment when I come. No, 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 listen to me. You have a picture of eternal security. The Bible teaches us in John chapter 10 that we are all saved by entering through the door. Jesus says, I am the door, and I give unto them eternal life. Jesus is the door. So we enter salvation through the door. The Bible also says in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I give unto them eternal life, and they are in my hand. My Father, who is greater than all, they they are also in His hand. And then the Bible teaches us later on in the New Testament that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. So If Jesus wasn't strong enough to hold us, and God the Father wasn't strong enough to hold us, any leaks or cracks that might be through the knuckles, the Holy Spirit of God seals us unto the day of redemption. So our sealing specifically has to do with the day that we are redeemed. Listen, my friend, you are eternally saved. Noah's boat needed to be watertight. Your salvation needs to be airtight. And more than airtight, listen to me, your salvation needs to be error-tight. Because everybody wants to make you think, oh, you mess up, you better get right real quick. Oh, you're right, my friend, if you mess up, you better get right real quick. But it ain't got nothing to do with whether or not you're saved. This door was controlled by Almighty God, just like my salvation is not in my hands. Boy, if my salvation is in my hands, I am already in a bad way. My salvation, my hope is in nothing less than Jesus' blood and His righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground.
ground is sinking sand. Listen to me, friend. God the Father in heaven secures your salvation this morning. And don't let anybody, no matter how many PhDs or degrees they got on their wall, tell you that they can, you can lose your salvation. You lit, sit down and read some of their literature about men with PhDs and all this the, theological knowledge, and yet they go to bed fearful every night that they've lost their own salvation. My friend, I'm so thankful that my salvation is in God's hands, not in my own. Oh, there's a wonderful lesson about the dilemma that God faced. A just God, but a, mod, a God that wanted to give grace. There's a door, a lesson about a door. There's only one door. This door was not always going to be open, and this door is not under our control. There's a lot of people in this world who think, Oh, I'll get saved later, preacher. You don't know when that door is going to shut. So what we see finally this morning is there is a decision. A decision. Now, we all know the story, how that Noah is instructed to build the ark. He's given specific directions, he and his family. You can believe whatever you want. I don't believe he had 120 years to build the ark. I think at most he had about 100. But I think you could even say he had even less than that. Regardless, Noah better be busy building this boat. And then all of a sudden, God says, hey, Noah, what you're going to do is you're going to bring all these animals into the ark. Have you ever asked yourself where the animals come from? Was Noah supposed to be contractor by day and zoologist by night? She's supposed to be building the boat and then, all right, Ham, you got the, you got the rope ready. We got to go catch a rhino today. You, no, 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 no. God specifically says this. Hey, Noah, bring these animals into the ark. Who brought them to the ark? God. I believe with my whole heart, God divinely and supernaturally led these animals to this ark. And it was Noah's responsibility to get them from outside the ark, inside the ark. You can read chapter number 7 and it almost seems that God assisted him in that endeavor as well. So these animals did not have choice. They were divinely, sovereignly guided by God. Let me ask you a question. Did Noah have a choice? The whole time. At the end of chapter 6, the Bible says, And Noah did as the Lord commanded. Chapter 7 again reemphasizes, Noah did as the Lord commanded. The animals were sovereignly led to the boat. Noah had a choice to never build the boat in the first place. Noah's choice remained intact. In fact, I even submit to you that as the boat has been constructed, all the animals are loaded up. Noah and his family standing there at the foot of the door that leads up to the boat... I submit to you that Noah made a choice at that moment. The choice was to place his faith off of the earth, take his faith out of what he could do, and step into the boat that God had sovereignly guided him to prepare. Now that was Noah's choice. You have a choice this morning as well. God is sovereign God guides, God directs, God has placed you in this auditorium this morning, but this morning you have a choice to enter the door or not. 
In fact, God puts it like this. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. There are very few times in Scripture where God appears in a place of relying on something else to happen. But He stands at the door and knocks, and He says, If any man will open the door. Does every man have the choice to open the door? You bet your bottom dollar they do. They have a choice to allow God into the door of their heart. They have a choice to enter the door of heaven. They have a choice to go through the door of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is your choice. And I want to tell you today that our society, our culture is overwhelmed with choices. I dare you to go to QT today and pick up a bottle of water. It'll take you 12 minutes to decide which one you ought to get. There are two refrigerated coolers of water at Quick Trip. In fact, a long time ago, I preached a sermon on living water. I had, I believe, 12 different waters lined up on this stage. And the only place I went was Quick Trip. And I didn't include sparkling waters in that. 12 different kinds. This morning you woke up, you probably looked at your tie rack or your shirt rack. You had a lot of choices to make. Ladies, you get online to order your grocery order. You have a lot of choices to make. Which bag of uh, goldfish do I want? Do I want the generic? Do I want the colorful? Do I want the cheddar? Do I want the white cheddar? Do I want the explosion flavor? We are inundated with choices. But listen to me as I close. There is no more important choice that you can make than what I am speaking about today. We're not talking about going to the grocery store and looking at a shelf of the many different options or varieties. We're talking about to choose to accept Christ as your personal Savior or reject Him and trust your own crafted means. That is the choice. What will you decide? Jesus says, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in... He shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. What will you choose today? Will you enter in at the door or will you stop short of it? And when the door closes, you be on the outside looking in.